We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. Well, what an interesting uh, Friday and and weekend uh, it has been. You know, we talked about this uh, just as we were signing off with uh, Radley at the end of the show on Friday afternoon. Um, and, and we've talked about this many times in, in the world of politics. If you want to sort of sneak something out the back door and don't really want too many people to notice, although this is kind of hard to keep quiet, you drop the bomb, boom, uh, on a Friday afternoon. And literally, as we're signing off, like sometime after 530, between 530 and 6, uh, David Johnson handed in his resignation as special rapporteur and said, no, he's out, doesn't want to do it anymore. Uh, I'm not going to belabor with what happened over the course of the weekend. But I thought it was fascinating that, uh, you know, as I'm signing off on Friday night, um, he's he's stepping down. He's resigning as special rapporteur. I get up Saturday morning and the prime minister's in Ukraine. (laughs) He's taken off on a surprise visit to the Ukraine. You know why? Because then in the next day, over the course of the weekend, the headline story in the national news is the prime minister is in Ukraine. Then the second story is, oh, yeah, the special rapporteur has uh, resigned. And we got a hell of a mess on our hands. And it looks like we're on the way to a public inquiry. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, Getting up Saturday morning and look. The the, uh, prime minister has decided to make a surprise visit to Ukraine with one of those big binder, big folders like, you know, Donald Trump would carry around signing things and presenting them. And it's like, oh, my goodness, how did this all happen? And does he not know that David Johnson just resigned? Like, he, he was probably on the plane halfway there by the time that message landed. Uh, anyway, that is the big news over the course of the weekend. And there really is no other uh, alternative now other than a a public inquirer, inquiry. And it's fascinating because I was just watching Question Period a little earlier on before I came on. And they're going back and forth. And it, it, it's funny because it's like they both sound, both sides sound like they want a, rep, uh, a uh, public inquiry, but the government doesn't want to call it. So it, it's pretty funny. Like it's, it's the NDP, the bloc, the conservatives. All right, Johnson stepped down. Let's bring in the public inquiry. And instead, like uh, the safety minister and all the other ministers, because the prime minister is in Ukraine, or maybe he's resting, he's got jet lag. I'm not sure. But it's the deputy prime minister in charge today, uh, the day after or the first day back after David Johnston has, has resigned. And, and, and the government seems to be throwing it back to the opposition. Well, they need to tell us what they want. The, the opposition needs to tell us who they want to put in place and what part of a, uh, a public inquiry, like what they want to do and stuff, eh? And I'm thinking, well, who the hell is the government here? And, of course, the opposition's having none of that and just saying, just call a dang public inquiry, will you please? And then we'll figure it out. But you got to call a public public inquiry. So it's as if the government is, is sort of hovering on the fence between, well, you know, we really uh, don't want a public inquiry. But, I mean, there's no other way to go. But, you know, you should come forward and we should meet and how we're going to do this. No, it's not a, it's not a case of how we're going to do this. 
the government calls a public inquiry, and then they all decide who's going to be, who's going to head it up, whether it's one, two, or three people, whatever. Jugmeet Singh saying earlier today that, uh, you know, an ex-judge, a, a retired judge with no connections is fine. It's not a big deal. And and again, uh, Jugmeet Singh earlier on today saying, just do it. Just do it. Just call the public inquiry. And instead, you know, the opposition is trying to make it sound like, well, you know, our, uh, sorry, the government is trying to make it sound like the opposition is dragging their feet. Well, the opposition doesn't call the public inquiry. The government of the day calls the public inquiry. And then they decide on a neutral body or person, what have you, to to head it all up or peoples. So it's it, there's a lot of... You know, like the government is is got the hand in the cookie jar, caught, but not still willing to say that it's got chocolate smeared all over its face. So uh, and seeming to push it back on to the uh, opposition. Well, what do you want? What do you how do you want us to do? Like, give us some suggestions. Give us some people. Give us some. You know, do you want to do a We because we really can't do a full public inquiry, but we can kind of do. No, 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 no. Because that just drags in the opposition and just cloudies the water just clouds everything makes it all muddy so again the opposition are just throwing it right back and saying call the inquiry just call the public inquiry and stop trying to like push it back onto us just do it as david or as uh, jagmeet singh just do it don't ask us for our suggestions just call the inquiry and then we'll go through the process of finding a neutral uh, or neutral bodies to to head it all up so it's kind of funny because it sounds like they're both in the same place but nobody wants to actually well the government doesn't want to actually um uh, call it so instead, they sort of give these options to the opposition, and then, you know, the argument starts. And it's like, there should be no argument. There's nothing to discuss here. We've already been through all of that. David Johnson stepped down. It's obvious there's a need for a public inquiry. Call it, and then they'll go through the process of deciding who gets to head it all up. Fascinating to watch as this uh, all goes down and uh, the ministers in the government, uh, the prime minister is not there. Uh, again, uh, Friday night, Friday afternoon, uh, David Johnson steps down as the special rapporteur. By the time we get up Saturday morning, the prime minister is making a surprise visit to Ukraine. Don't think that this isn't all carefully planned. We'll talk about that coming up over the course of the afternoon. Also going to talk about Movember and also more on the resignation and what is happening moving forward uh, and and you know that according to a, a report from the National Bank of Canada how much it costs if you wanted to buy how much you have to earn if you want to buy a home in Hamilton man it's unbelievable we'll talk about that coming up in just a sec I hear something you don't really hear uh, often uh, in the same sentence NASCAR and 24-hour road racing Le Mans any of that uh, well it happened over this weekend as uh, NASCAR uh, or a next generation nascar uh racing car competed in this race and finished it let's bring in eric thomas raceline radio network you can hear it every sunday night right here on chml and he is with us now eric thanks for the time hope you're well i'm doing good scooter how are you buddy are you okay? so far so good so tell everybody what happened here and why this is significant well, this kind of goes back for, you know, more than two years, and actually way back to uh, to NASCAR founder Bill France, who, with his stock cars, always looked to the premier road racing um, endurance race, I guess you call it, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. 
in France, which some people say is as big as the Indy 500. It really isn't, but it, it is certainly a, a showcase of the world's manufacturers. And he wanted to take one of his stock cars and run them up against these big, expensive, very fast, road racing specialized prototype cars and even GT cars like Porsches and Ferraris and the exotic stuff and take just a basic NASCAR stock car and put it in the field and just see how the thing would fare. Well, about two years ago, working with Hendrick Motorsports and Chevrolet and Goodyear and IMSA, they worked together and and put together a team uh, with Hendrick and uh, former Formula One champion uh, Jensen Button, seven-time NASCAR champion Jimmy Johnson, and Chad Canals, who, of course, orchestrated most of those seven championships, was in on this as well. And uh, Mike Rockenfeller, who's a two-time uh, Le Mans racer, uh, 24 hours of Le Mans winner, and uh, made this thing a team and brought over a stock car. They did some some funky things to the body of it, although it is essentially uh, a NASCAR Camaro with uh, a little bit of uh, juice under the hood, but... Basically, when it goes by, it sounds exactly like a glorious little 350 small block V8 going by, completely different. Now, what everyone was talking about, they call it Garage 56 because IMSA and the World Endurance Championship for this race has a special garage, Garage 56, put aside for anybody who wants to enter a one-of-a-kind specialty kind of a design racing automobile that doesn't really fall within the rules of everybody else, just to showcase the thing. So that's why it's called Garage 56. Well, this car just grabbed the imagination of fans, of the media, and other competitors as well, to the point where, in the this is cool, in the driver's meeting, they said they were going to wave a white flag wherever uh, the other cars were coming up on this thing, figuring it's going to be excruciatingly slow. But it wasn't. It hung in there and was quicker than some of the GT cars, and it finished. It did not break. Well, they had some problems with the transmission that slowed them for about an hour. But they they did 285 laps, and they finished 39th in a 62-car field. So Hmm. North American racing ingenuity and engineering, which is very simplistic compared to these exotic cars, did very, very well. (laughs) But just to see this little piece of NASCAR, not drowning at all, but holding its own and beating some of the GT cars was was quite an, uh, an interesting adventure to watch. It was it was really quite cool to see. So, what would they have to do to one of these cars in order to make it Le Mans ready? In order to make it well, durable for twenty four hours? What is it? You said it's basically the same car, but a little different. How is it? Well, How little, are they different? Yeah, a little different. If you if you saw the pictures of it, it's got some additional bodywork fairings on the back to try and get it to stick down. Braking is something you really you have to sort of work at, so they had you know, some work on the brakes. I mean, it's a great big heavy stock car, and uh, going through some of the chicanes, it was a little bit of a task there. But, uh, you know, Jensen Button said the thing was just a gas to drive. It was an awful lot of fun. They did some different gearing, of course, and um, I, I don't think they detune the motor too much. It certainly does because of the growl and because it's, a, it's a basically a, a small block Chevy, a V8 that it can't rev anywhere near as high as the LMP cars or the prototype cars or some of the GT cars. So they make sure that the engine's going to hold together. And, again, they had a problem with the gearbox with the transmission that held them up for about an hour. But 
They were able to get it back on the track, and they finished the darn thing in the 30s uh, among 62 cars. So that's basically all they could do to it. I mean, they had to; they couldn't do anything really exotic to it. They had to work sort of within within the rules. They couldn't do anything too exotic. But most of it had to do with aero, and most of it had to do with the braking and gearing. Uh, other than that, is she's just a good old-fashioned NASCAR Camaro that everybody thought was so cool you could hear it coming a mile away because it sounded so much growlier than the other cars. So what's next? We've talked before on the show about you know how NASCAR has kind of fallen behind here and F1 and sports cars really uh, gaining momentum here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is certainly what they needed. This got them some publicity. Well, it did, and and they really they really sort of stuck their heads up, and people took notice of this. I mean, one thing that Rick Hendrick said I didn't want to do was to go over there and fall fat, flat on our face and have the car break or have us be ridiculously slow. Well, they were able to achieve, you know, uh, overcome all of those fears, and, and Chad Knauson and that three-driver trio really, really, you know, had some impact with a little chunk of North American stock car racing in among all this exotic stuff. And you're noticing, too, that in a little while now, and it's starting to get a little more emphasis now, Scott, is the fact that you're getting some of the NASCAR guys, like Kyle Larson, interested in running the Indianapolis 500, some Indy 500 guys trying uh, stock cars and trying some other stuff, and of course, for me. Former F1 driver is now in his second year with Andretti Autosport on the IndyCar side. So you're starting to see a little more of this crossover between the, the all the different pursuits out there. And I think that's a good thing. It's very entertaining. And, I mean, they just wanted to, to show the world in, in the sports cars that not only could – it's almost like going back to, you know, Le Mans in the 60s when the Ford GT was fighting with Ferrari and that domination. They made a movie about that, you know, Ford mm-hmm. versus Ferrari. This is almost kind of the same thing where, you know, they they brought in these the Ford GT with a little 289 Ford V8, and it waxed the Ferraris, even though they tried to bend the rules a little bit. So it's kind of a revisit to that, you know, with A.J. Foyt and Dan Gurney and, and, and guys like that back in, back in the days of the 60s where it really turned Le Mans on its ear where you cannot compete with Ferrari. You know, but they beat them. You know, and, and and this is kind of a revision, a revisiting of that, uh, and it was very, really cool to see. It really was. It and it it created some noise, created some interest, and. If you're watching this around the clock race, especially at night, you're you know here's a here's a here's a stock car with working <laughs> headlights because they do drive at night at Le Mans for the 24 yeah. hours, obviously because they're driving at night. So it was very very cool to see this this thing growling around out there. And other than that little uh, glitch they had in the transmission, the darn thing held together and finished the race, which was uh, what they exactly what they wanted to do. It just made the race a whole lot more interesting, at least as far as I was concerned. Eric Thomas with us, Raceline Radio Network, uh, every Sunday night right here on CHML NASCAR at Le Mans. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure, Scooter. Call anytime. We've been more than happy to talk to you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A new survey from Movember Canada is showing that more men are taking care of their physical health. Yeah. However, mental health, not so much. Uh, to talk more about all of this from Movember Canada, Todd Minerson is here. Todd, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, great to talk to you, Scott, especially uh, in June, not November. Well, you know what? That's my first question here, Todd. Normally when you know we're talking to the people from Movember, it's because it's the beginning of, of, of Movember and you're starting your annual campaign. Obviously, a little bit more in depth, in depth here than just mustaches in November. That's right. You know, men's health is a 24-7, 365 issue, and this is Men's Health Week around the world. And uh, we woke up and realized we can't just be focused on it in one month out of 12. So 
here we are asking men about their health and the state of men's health and what they're doing about it and finding out some really interesting things. And we certainly know uh, your campaign through the month of November and and obviously getting guys in to get checked. And and that has really opened up the dialogue. And you're seeing some improvement and some change in attitude there. Yeah, we you know, we did a survey around the world, Scott. We asked about 8,500 men around the world and about 2,000 of them were here in Canada. Uh, a lot of questions about the state of men's health and what we found out was men really actually do give a crap about our health and we are doing things about it, albeit there is room for improvement. You know, we saw that uh, almost half of guys would be uh, willing to contact a doctor if they notice something physically wrong uh, within the space of one week. We noticed that went way higher on the kinds of cancers that we work on, prostate and testicular cancer on some of those indicators like a lump on your testicles or some blood in your stool, like almost 80% of guys would see a doctor right away. But unfortunately, where we still have a little bit of work to do is around our own mental health, where, you know, only a third of men said they would actually seek some help after a month of noticing something was wrong with them in terms of their mental health. And even a full 20% of guys said they wouldn't seek help at all for their mental health. And so it's really, you know, some of those guys that we've got to reach out to and say, it's okay to ask for help. You can get good help and you can take care of your mental health the same way you take care of your physical health. And obviously this works because Movember is proof of that. How long has that campaign gone on? And obviously the whole objective there was to get guys, you know, aware of prostate health and such. But uh, over a period of time, how much has this changed? How has attitudes changed? Yeah, it's a great question. We don't know exactly because we didn't start measuring back 20 years ago when you right. know, 30 guys got together in a pub in Australia to start this crazy movie. Yeah. Uh, but now we're here and, you know, that kind of data that we're seeing about men's awareness around prostate and testicular health is amazing. Now we've got to keep pushing that same for our mental health. You know, it's 17 years that Movember has been working in Canada and probably about the last eight or so, including mental health and suicide prevention in our work. And we have definitely seen improvement. Um, not that we should be satisfied because, you know, what we're also learning in Men's Health Week this week is that, you know, in Canada in 2020, a boy that's born in the same time as a girl has got a almost 4.2 year shorter life expectancy. And those are largely for preventable reasons. So we know if we can raise the profile of men's health, if we can get men to be better at taking care of their own health, we're going to see that, that gap shrink which is great news for all of us because, you know, when men are healthy, their communities and their families are healthier. And in fact, the whole world's healthier when, when we take care of our health. And obviously uh, campaigns like Movember show that this works. What about post-pandemic in a post-pandemic world now, Todd? Um, and and come, dealing with this afterwards, especially around uh, the awareness of mental health. Uh, is this changing the discussion now that we're coming out of this pandemic or out of it? Yeah, you're right on. I think that the discussion changed, uh, you know, really quickly at the beginning of the pandemic because we recognized how much our mental health, all of us, not just men, men and women, kids, you know, our, our mental health was suffering when the things that we need, like connection in the world, uh, were taken away from us in those early stages. We also came up with some great coping mechanisms around connection and, you know, some great awareness about being conscious of when things are changing. We need to keep sticking to those things that we learned and put the bad habits behind us now that we're out of it. But I know also we hear from a lot of guys who, you know, put off looking after their health during the pandemic for lots of reasons. 
you know, not only just access and, and, and getting to an appointment, but also for taking care of other people in their lives. And so it's time to, to start, you know, understanding that we're at our best when we're healthy and we're at our best when we start to take care of our own health. And, you know, these are definitely some post-pandemic lessons that we're trying to help guys with around the world. And especially during the pandemic, it was right in your face. I mean, you somebody, everybody Absolutely. knew everybody. Everybody knew how they were feeling and, and such. And it just seemed to take this, um, you know, this discussion from, well, you know, it doesn't involve me to, oh, my goodness, this is involving everybody and everybody's talking about it now. Yeah, you couldn't escape being impacted by, you know, the lack of connection, yeah. you know, taking away of the things that we used to take care of our health and our mental health as well, like going to the gym or seeing friends or, or those types of things. So, you know, hopefully with the, with the most of that behind us, uh, we're able to focus on things like connection again, and we're able to look at breaking down those stereotypes and stigmas that, that may be at the root of why men, still some men are not seeking help, especially around our mental health. We have to know that, you know, getting help is okay. It can actually be extremely beneficial. And it's actually a sign of strength to go and ask for help when you need it. And, uh, there's no better testament to that than people who have come through that kind of support and been, you know, healthier, happier people for the rest of their lives. Same sort of stigma around mental health as there was around the prostate issue. It almost seems like the same, but it's different. It, it is. There are some similarities for sure around, you know, comfort of talking about it, around lack of role models of, of seeing other men in your life do that. And, you know, there's some same there's some similar challenges to getting there in the end you know, understanding the benefits of it, like getting your prostate checked at, at 50 years old or earlier, if you have a family history or a genetic predisposition, you know, we know that that can save lives. The same goes for your mental health. Uh, we know that uh, there's this myth around men actively seeking help. And when they do, things get much better. And uh, help doesn't always have to be in the form of, you know, lying on a therapist couch. There's lots of different ways that men can access that kind of help and support first. But it starts with breaking down those stereotypes and it starts with talking about it. And so, yeah, like the early days of prostate cancer or even, you know, testicular cancer, you have to be able to talk about it first and you have to be able to be okay with asking for help. It'll be interesting to see, say, five, ten years down the road, how our attitude has changed towards this, just as it has when you started, you guys started November way back when. It'll be interesting if they can make that kind of progress. Yeah, we're hopeful. And, you know, this this uh, research for Men's Health Week this year was actually a really encouraging sign for us. You know, we're not uh, starting at a place that's as bad as many people suspect. And it's given some clear, clear uh, indications of where we can help guys. You know, I mentioned earlier that one in five, that 20 percent of guys who who said in the survey they will never ask for help around their mental health. Those are guys that we really, really need to reach out to. And if you have them in your lives, you know, talk to them, reach out. Send them to Movember.com. We've got a ton of great resources for having those kinds of conversations. And it can be the start of something great for them. A new survey from Movember Canada is showing that more men are taking better care of their physical health. Uh, we just need to keep working with the mental health side of it all. Todd Minerson is with us from Movember Canada. Uh, Movember.com to find out more. Todd, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. And I remember her saying many times, if you're in politics and you want to slip something in uh, and drop a bomb, the best time to do it is really late on a Friday afternoon. And that's exactly what happened when David Johnston stepped down uh, just before we signed off the air at uh, 6 o'clock. And then I woke up Saturday morning and it turned on the news. I know, I should take a day off. Uh, I turn it and at like 10 a.m., I'm seeing that the prime minister is in Ukraine. So, like, he, I don't even, I think he was in the air when David Johnston announced this. Uh, and, and so, anyway, the next morning, the Prime Minister is in Ukraine on a surprise visit there, uh, trying to change the channel. And if you looked at the weekend newscast, the number one story was the Prime Minister was in Ukraine. The second one was that David Johnston had resigned. Although, you know, uh, why Ukraine now? Well, let's ask David Johnston. Uh, let's ask Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, with us now. So thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thanks for having me on, Scott. I remember you many times saying if you want to drop a bomb, you do it at 530 <laughs> on a Friday. And that's exactly what happened here. And then I was surprised when I woke up Saturday morning and I turn on the news and the prime minister's in a surprise visit to Ukraine. Yeah, look over here, look over here, don't look over there, but look over here. Yeah. yeah, you know what? It's a tried and true strategy. And what you just said before, you know, I got on, Scott, absolutely holds true. What was the number one story? Justin Trudeau in Ukraine. What was the number two story? David Johnson resi- resigning. So when you look at a PR strategy in order to try and mitigate, you know, the bad for the good, this is a strategy that essentially worked. Well, it did for 24 hours, but what happens now? Uh, where are uh, where is the government now? I mean, for the longest time, don't need the public inquiry, don't want one, everybody demanding one, and then David Johnson says, no, I'm out. Uh, and now it's interesting watching the government saying, well, we're asking the opposition for guidelines, what we should do here, what we sh-, as if, you know, they wanted to get into some sort of bargaining match here uh, over what to do. And really, at the end of the day, it's like call an inquiry, and then the process starts. You know, it's interesting because, you know, by putting it in the opposition's court, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So it's okay, well and fine when Pierre Pauly ever wants to scream and yell and complain about something. But, you know, the beauty, beauty of being in opposition is that you get to scream and yell and do nothing about it, right? But you still you still get your airtime and you still get your quotes in and you still make the media cycle. However, now what they're saying is, okay, you know what? Uh, We want the opposition to sort of set the criteria here. So what that means is, is that whatever criteria you set, you also have to live by. And this happens, you know, elections go in cycles, right, Scott? Sometimes it's the liberals, sometimes it's the conservatives. But at the end of the day, one party or the other has to live with the same set of rules. So when you throw the ball into the other person's court, it's almost like a little piece of dynamite, right? You can either, you know pop it right back or you but what you don't want is you don't want it to blow up in your face uh it just seems that they're so out of rope here yet they keep looking i mean you know this is like trying to get the opposition to come and see the top secret information it's like no we're not going to play your game uh at the end of the day um the, the the government is waiting for the opposition to to say something to come up with a plan so that can start an argument back and forth at the end of the day when will or when should they just call a public inquiry which is it, it's obvious it seems that's where we're heading 
It is, but I guess that they're hoping that it gets batted around back and forth enough that it becomes a little bit more watered down than what everybody is screaming for right about now. Um, You know, I mean, all three parties do want this and they do have to set up a set of criteria, but by sort of drawing out the process, and I can only speculate here, I mean, I, I don't know and neither do you, but by drawing out the process, you know, you hope it that it waters down the proceedings. But, you know, when you listen to Pierre Pauly ever talk about this, he says, well, you know, when we have this inquiry, we're not going to have anybody who has been on the board of the Chinese funded Trudeau Foundation or has is as has been affiliated with the Chinese funded liberal government. So, you know, you, you have to, you know, when I listen to this rhetoric, you know, I'm wondering how much of it lands and how much of it is just seeing if it lands. But it's very interesting game the conservatives are playing right now. What does this do or what did this do for David Johnston's reputation? You know, I kind of feel bad about it. I, I think that yeah. you know, by appointing somebody that was essentially appointed by Harper during the Harper term, um, you know, you would have thought there was n- neutrality. And so here is this this gentleman who has you know certainly served his length of public service and ended it as governor general. And you know, when you read all the articles about him, they always use the same word, Scott. It's called embattled, and he was embattled. And every time, you know, they they called into question the proceedings or they called into question a ruling or a decision, you know, they put him up in front of the cameras, not anybody from the liberal government, but they put David Johnson in front of the cameras and he had to handle it. And I guess at the beginning he thought, well, you know, this is just the way it works and I'll just continue with this. And then when he saw how drawn out this was going to be and the you know, largely untenable for him. And did he want to unwind his legacy of what he left in terms of his public service to the this country, the likelihood is not. So I think that for him, he cut it short when he needed to be. He stepped in, he stepped up, but I think he stepped out at the right time. I think he waited a little too long um, and sort of and sort of playing the victim like, you know, it was such a partisan thing and everybody's picking on me and everybody's crapping on my stellar reputation. It wasn't about a stellar reputation at all. Everybody agrees on that. Uh, what th- this was all about was the perception of bias because of his closeness, much like you would see in a, in a jury selection. But it's funny how he sort of spun it around and like he was the victim. He was the one being picked on. Well, I think that everybody had a hand in writing that resignation letter, Scott. I don't. Th- I think that David Johnson certainly wrote the skeleton of it, but it had to be approved by the PMO. So I think that that letter um, of resignation underwent many changes, and there was many a discussion over the turn of phrase and certain words used. So what we saw at the end of the day struck the right note, not just for the PMO, but also for David Johnson himself. Alyssa Freeman, uh, Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, talking about David Johnson's resignation on Friday. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too, Scott. Thanks for having me. As we mentioned earlier, uh, late Friday, just as we're signing off the air, David Johnston, special rapporteur, uh, resigned and stepped down. And now it seems we've got government um, talking about a public inquiry, saying it was always on the table. Uh, is that the option here, or is it uh, another committee special rapporteur and a replacement for uh, David Johnson? Let's bring in Will Stewart, Senior Vice President, National Lead, Public Affairs and Advocacy, HNK Strategies, and with us now. Uh, thanks for the time, Will. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Your thoughts on the Friday announcement, the bomb that was dropped, that all of a sudden uh, David Johnston was resigning? Well, we have this thing in politics where we call Friday afternoons when it's nice outside a dump day, and I don't think yeah. we saw this big dump coming, but uh, there it is. 
so it was a little bit a little bit shocking, but not surprising to see that uh, David Johnson has finally done the right thing and and resigned. What is a little bit shocking and disappointing is the response from the Liberal government, somehow blaming the opposition for his resignation or perhaps the media for his resignation. But you know, I think the the approach here of outsourcing the ethics and judgment of the prime minister to a family friend uh, perhaps was not the best strategy. And we're now in a worse situation than we were at the outset of this, certainly for the Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government. Are you kind of surprised that the David Johnston resignation is kind of like playing the victim? Like he's doing this not because there was a perception of bias, but because everybody's attacking him. It's almost as if he's the victim, not the country here. Well, exactly right. And, you know, so Dominic LeBlanc, a federal liberal cabinet minister, came out on Friday, as, as you say, and certainly tried to paint this as something that the opposition had ganged up on them uh, to do. Right. And of course, it yeah. was all members of the House of Commons that had voted for an inquiry led by a motion by the NDP, who, of course, are in a no confidence agreement with the liberals to keep this government uh, alive. So. I was surprised that it happened, uh, not shocked, uh, but thankful that we see all opposition parties finally standing together and saying, this cannot stand, this has to change. And that's exactly where we are now. Now, the Liberals are not uh, certainly done playing their, their games. They're not done playing their games. Uh, so we will see where this goes in the coming days. But there's a lot of, uh, of political machinations back and forth for the hearts and minds of Canadians, for sure. It seems like a, uh, a public inquiry is the only option now, and, and the government's even talking about it, saying, well, it was always on the table. It's not like we weren't going to have one. It was up to David Johnson to decide. But it, it's almost as if now they're throwing all of the questions onto the opposition, uh, including well, exactly. one, w- one point that I wrote down was, uh, how will they protect the people who testify? It's like, well, well, that's not the opposition's job. That's the government's job. As soon as the government calls a public inquiry, I'm sure the process will fall into place but it's as if they're trying to ride the fence where are we going to get a public inquiry or are we going to get just another david johnston well exactly and you know i think what we saw was the prime minister outsourcing his accountability and ethics to david johnson that failed now the uh, dominic leblanc is trying to outsource the government jobs to the opposition at this point if they keep wanting to outsource this i'm sure the conservatives would love to just take over and do the jobs them themselves but you're absolutely right some of the questions he asked how do you safeguard whistleblowers Well, they're employed by the government. That's kind of the government's job. How do you maintain secrecy of documents? Well, secrecy is determined by the government, not by the opposition. Uh, So, you know, a lot of the questions that Dominic LeBlanc have asked is almost as if he's setting it up to throw his hands up in the air in 10 days to say the opposition can't give me any good ideas. Uh, It's a pox on all their houses and and this is over. But, you know, to the credit of the Conservatives, they banded together with the bloc, the NDP, to say we're going to be submitting something. We are going to push this forward. And the timeline simply have to be before the next election, which is a reasonable request, which I'm sure is what is causing the Liberals to be a little hot under the collar today. Uh, and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh standing up today and saying, just do it. Just call it. Just do it. Like, what do you keep volleying this back to us for? Just do it. Are there any other options? How do you play this out, especially now that David Johnston has stepped down? 
Exactly right. You know, and it's 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 funny. Paul Wells, the, the great political columnist here in the country, said you can tell the liberals are really in big trouble when they start saying they're going to do what they should have done originally. If yeah. the liberals had done this approach of just calling an inquiry six months ago or five months ago, even, and Justin Trudeau had stood up and said, I'm mad as heck and I'm not taking it anymore. I think we'd be in a radically different position here where we're all investigating. And I think we saw that exact same situation in France, another G7 country. They had a special rapporteur themselves. But the difference here is he wasn't a friend of the prime minister or president. And what they found was that the increase in interference from Beijing is aggressive and increasing. How can a G7 country have such a radically different finding than we have had in in Canada in the Mm. same time period directed at the same country? Seems passing strange to me. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, uh, obviously the the dump, the drop, the bomb uh, late on a Friday afternoon. I get up Saturday morning and the prime minister is in Ukraine on a surprise visit. I mean, my goodness. And obviously, first question period since David Johnson stepped down and the prime minister's not in the house. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, look, I think that it would be it wouldn't be believable. I've worked in politics a lot and I know full well that it would take a lot longer to plan a trip to Ukraine for the prime minister than Friday to Saturday or or even the Monday that we're on uh, today. Having said that, this scandal has been ongoing for a while. Uh, We know that the liberals, when they have difficulties like this, the first approach is to send people abroad to look tough, to be international, to seem like a leader. We saw Trudeau head to Ukraine, which is good and we shouldn't criticize that but it's nope. clearly meant as a bit of a, a of a distraction at some point in this debate we even have bill blair out saying they're going to create a nato-like alliance to fight forest fires also a great thing to do with our american partners but it is again passing strange that we've got all this military talk all this global affairs talk the few 24 48 business hours after such a major embarrassment for the government how does this leave david johnston Well, I think David Johnson is probably licking his wounds a little bit. I think, you know, contrary to what the Liberals have said, I don't think that the opposition attacked David Johnson as a person. In many instances, all opposition parties have said they respect him as a human, but he's hopelessly conflicted in this. And I can't see how the the prime minister who went skiing and vacationing with David Johnson's family and as a child, can say that there's no relationship here. I think Justin Trudeau has really done a disservice to David Johnson here, and it's 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 quite sad to see, but he is an eminent Canadian. He's done great service to this country, and let's hope that this is not too big of a black mark on his otherwise stellar record for our nation. Will Stewart with us, Senior Vice President, National Lead, Public Affairs and Advocacy, HNK Strategies. Well, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Friday afternoon, late Friday afternoon, David Johnson resigns by Saturday morning. The prime minister's in Ukraine. Let's bring in Tim Powers uh, and talk about all of this. Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacostata. And with us now, Tim, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, you don't want the job? I mean, you know, you can do it. I'd like to be a senator. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's well, the gig you i'm can apply through the independent senate uh, commission to get one there buddy go for it you and me as senators i think we would solve all the world's problems right there we'd have fun anyway and you gotta have fun absolutely. yeah absolutely. all right so your thoughts on what has transpired on late friday afternoon 
Well, I guess, look, Mr. Johnson was in in an inevitable position uh, after his testimony last week at the House of Commons uh, committee, which didn't go very well. Uh, And I think, uh, yeah, he just (laughs) he had enough. Who could who could blame him? Uh, I think he realized what he had become, not just a lightning rod, but become a shield for the government, because as I said to you before, I think others have said it as well, um, the Trudeau government was using Mr. Johnson to not talk about other things. Um, and I think like anybody, you get to a certain point and enough's enough. And that was uh, the decision he made. So does the government want a private uh, inqui- or a public inquiry now, or are they just looking to uh, add another special rapporteur? Because it seems as if they're asking the opposition to do the work and, you know, give us some suggestions. Tell us what you want. And Jugmeet Singh's just screaming back, just call a public inquiry. Just do it. I think what they're trying to do, I, I don't know what they know. I don't know if they know what they want, but I think what they're trying to do politically, Scott, is bring the others into this drama and be able to say, though not likely uh, with credibility, oh, look, well, we tried and we tried to get so and so and we tried to get consensus and it didn't happen. So here's where we're going. Um, so, yeah, I, look, maybe maybe this will end up in an inquiry. Um, maybe it won't. Um, the other thing that's happening here, Parliament is on its uh, the last days before summer recess. I think the government probably also just wants to get to the summer recess and this to go away, though it's not really going to go away. Over the next number of months, there will always be something that will pop up around all of this uh, as we uh, as it kind of swirls, it's just swirling, right? Like here we are, uh, and still no forward progress really on any of the things even Mr. Johnson talked about in his first report. What other options do they have? I mean, if they went down the angle of another committee and another special rapporteur, I mean, this would just open up the same can of worms because, you know, other than what, they're asking the opposition to help choose the leader. Um, what other option do they really have here? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Dominic LeBlanc, who's a very skilled political operator uh, and called in the back clean up and clean up the mess here, um, was referencing in one or two of the weekend interviews I saw him do uh, the part of the the Afghan detainee process that was in play in the Harper government. And it's interesting to note at that time, the liberals were calling for a public inquiry. But what the Harper government did is it had uh, a few different judges uh, retired, I believe they were at the time, um, approve what what documents could be seen and not seen and reviewed at that time. So, you know, Mr. LeBlanc was suggesting that maybe that was a way forward. So that that might be something they're looking at. Uh, but again, not not clear. I think they legitimately were caught by surprise with the prime minister being in Europe. Um, they didn't necessarily have a coherent a way to respond until Mr. LeBlanc had a press conference on Saturday morning. Um, at the end of the day, um, all the opposition is still calling for the public inquirer uh, inquiry. Um, once they call a public inquiry, doesn't all of this, the process, just fall into place? And by that I mean, well, then we got to get together and we got to find yep. someone or there some bodies to to chair all of this. So the first step really is not consulting with the opposition. The first step is calling a public inquiry. Then you consult with the opposition. Wouldn't that be accurate? 
Uh, unless you wanted to, you know, yes. I mean, to, you, to pick up where you were, a public inquiry comes with all sorts of procedures, processes, well-established in this country, right? Um, the, the liberals, uh, I think, believe that they, they don't know where they want to go. Um, I mean, they can make an argument better to have the commissioner or commissioners in place. It doesn't have to be one person. That's sort of the way they've done it in the past. Louise Arbor is a name I've, I've heard today floating about, but that's just speculative. So, you know, cart horse, you figure it out. Uh, but it, it, it continues to, I'll use the word again, squirrel. And the government looks woeful in its management of this. Uh, and uh, again, does it not make it look like they're hiding something? Like, is any of this worth it? I mean, just call the damn inquiry and move on. Like, it, the reason that they're not, it seems to be prob- uh, problematic. It seems that they are hiding something. It seems pretty obvious to everybody that we need this, yet for some reason they're reluctantly holding out. At a minimum, it looks like a chaotic hot mess. And, yeah, you certainly can make the conclusion that all right, if it's such a hot mess, what is it you don't want to talk about? Is yeah. it how, how, you know, as Mr. Johnson himself pointed out, and we shouldn't forget that, the, the, the state of communication within government around foreign threats and, and how agencies talk with each other and how people are informed uh, needed a lot of work. I think his first report suggested, you know, there need to be legislative changes. So maybe they don't want to talk further about that, but invariably they're going to have to. Uh, David Johnston playing the victim here. Um, I had to stand down. It's just gotten too uh, problematic. It's 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 all politics. Uh, everybody's picking on me again. It seemed the strategy for David Johnston was if you question anything he's doing, that it is an attack on his reputation. And I don't think I've heard anybody uh, discredit his reputation. That is not the point. The point is the perception of bias. But is selling playing the victim? Is that wash with Canadians? No. Uh, look, I, I mean, the political environment hasn't changed. Maybe it's changed for Mr. Johnson. It was highly politicized before he went in. It's still highly politicized. Maybe he didn't realize that. You know, as I said to you before about the man, I think he's a well-intended person. I think he's a person of high integrity. I think he fundamentally didn't legitimately get how difficult this environment was going to be and how even with his reputation, uh, that wasn't going to be a, a you know a, a get through this free card. And uh, I don't know if he's playing the victim or not, but nothing has changed in the environment. Mr. Johnson has just become a victim of it. Maybe he should have said no in the first place. Uh, what about the relationship between the prime minister and David Johnston now? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I suspect the government's a bit disappointed, though they've been you know, uh, respectful in their commentary to date. As I said at the beginning of this, Mr. Johnson was a convenient shield from them, right, for them. As long as they were talking about Mr. Johnson and his integrity and what that meant and why he shouldn't be questioned, they weren't talking about the things Mr. Johnson himself had said. Uh, pointed out about flaws in the system. So um, Mr. Johnson was useful politically for them, so I'm sure they're not happy that he's not there anymore. Tim Powers with us, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Status, uh, talking about David Johnston uh, stepping down a special rapporteur on Friday. Tim, thanks for the time. As always, be well. Take care, buddy. Talk to you again soon. 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As we chatted last week, former President, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump indicted 37 charges. Tomorrow, he's in Miami where he'll be arraigned and calling supporters to show up. Does he really want to be president or is this just more fundraising for him? Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. So set the stage for us tomorrow, uh, Reggie. What happens is and will he be there? He will be there. Uh, and in fact, uh, he landed uh, in Florida just over an hour or so ago. He's now at his uh, golf course home resort uh, in Doral, about 20 kilometers from where we are uh, in Miami. Uh, and tomorrow afternoon, he will make that drive from his golf course to the federal courthouse. Uh, and he will be arraigned the first time in U.S. history that a former president is going to face charges. And there are a number of them. As we found out last week, there are 37 charges in this indictment. Everything from obstruction to counts under the Espionage Act. Uh, and uh, what's the process that happens tomorrow? And he had to be there. What, or was there a chance that he may not? What about that, Reggie? I, I, we didn't hear that he was not going to show up. I mean, he, he made a point of saying that he would be there. He's the one who put this into the public's eye by putting it on his social media last week, saying that I'm being indicted and that I will be uh, at the courthouse. The process is likely to be far different from what we saw when he was indicted on state level charges uh, in, in Manhattan back in April. Uh, cameras are not allowed inside of a federal courtroom. So we will not see that kind of perp walk out one door and in through another door like we saw last time. And that sober, uh, that rather that somber mm. Donald Trump uh, making his way into the arraignment process. Uh, we know he will be fingerprinted. There will likely be a mugshot not released to the public. Uh, and then, you know, once charges are read, he will likely leave and is expected to head back to New Jersey tomorrow afterwards uh, for a fundraiser to try and monetize, continue to monetize on this um we were joking about that earlier because many said way back when he really didn't want to be president he was just seeing how far he could get and how much money he could raise and raise his profile has that discussion ever come up does he really want this gig or does he just because everything he does seems to be a fundraiser Sure. I mean, the, the, Donald Trump always has been the most important person uh, in Donald Trump's life, whether it's personal business uh, or political. But there are, you know, there are hints here that he does want to get back into the Oval Office. And just on his social media account a couple of hours ago, he posted that if he wins again, uh, he in turn, he intends to turn this presidency uh, into a bit of retaliation or eye for an eye, where he says that he will open up investigations into Joe Biden for, for you know, whatever crime it is that he thinks Joe Biden has uh, has committed. So, look, he does want back in. There are things that he ultimately would like to get done. But it's also worth remembering that if you are a president in the White House and sitting at the time, you can't be indicted. So it could also slow down other investigations. Hmm. There you go. Uh, so obviously tomorrow um, uh, he, he's arraigned. And then, as you said, he's back to New Jersey. What happens then? What? How does this play out? When does he end up back in court? What are the next steps? We'll have to wait to find out what the next steps in the courts are going 
going to be. They're going to have to set dates for discovery, and then we'll have to find out whether or not this court in Miami lives up to its nickname of the rocket docket in that things happen on a much more quick uh, pace. You know, does this drag out into the election campaign? Does this have him starting to weigh, uh, you know, whether or not he takes part in a campaign event or, uh, you know, something to do with a trial? You know, those are things that we'll have to, to watch for. Also have to watch for whatever happens during the day tomorrow. He's called on his supporters to rally outside of the courthouse, and there's been chatter that members of the of the Proud Boys, their local chapter, could also show up. You know, security outside, from what we saw, is pretty flimsy. It's some police tape and some low barriers. There are some legitimate concerns here that, as we've seen in the past, the former president's words could potentially have additional consequences. Uh, you said something interesting earlier on in, in, in talking about how if he becomes president, then all of this is put on the back burner, per se. Uh, as these charges mount, does he need to win the election in order to control his future? It's possible. I mean, look, if the former president is convicted, uh, nothing stops him from being able to run or potentially govern uh, from behind bars if that were to be the case. Uh, but if the former president were to win and face the conviction, he could also potentially pardon himself. So there would be avenues for him to essentially try to clear his name while pausing other investigations into him. You know, we've been told that at least in Georgia, the the, the indictments or potential indictments for you know his actions in the 2020 election could also be coming soon. You know, this could all be snowballing towards something that really forces him to potentially leave the campaign because he's just simply not going to have enough time to deal with it. Uh, We understand that the judge looking over this or overseeing this is one that he appointed. Is that accurate? And does that present a problem? Of course, uh, it is one that he's appointed, and it's one early on in the process that made rulings that were very favorable to him very early on. And there has been some criticism here whether or not there could be a potential conflict of interest. Legal experts say it's not likely to hold up that, you know, she would be forced to recuse herself or that the DOJ would have legs to stand on in claiming that there would be a conflict here. Uh, But it's worth remembering, too, that a judge's actions could have a significant impact on a court's reputation. And reputation is everything when you're looking at something through the eyes of the legal world. So all eyes will be on this judge and how the early motions uh, are and whether or not they are favorable to to the government or to Trump. That's something that's going to be under a significant eye. As this drags out, Reggie, does the Republican strategy change or the other candidates that are running? Not really. I mean, a lot of them are still backing the former president and they're defending, uh, well, they're defending him by going after the process and not acknowledging the problem. But at the same time, they're not really clearing themselves a path to try and steal away some of that support from Donald Trump. You know, they're defending the person that they ultimately would like to beat in this election. And recent polling shows that a majority of the support is still under Donald Trump. So whether or not this changes the narrative, at least for people within the race, you know, that's something that we'll have to wait and see. But for the most part, with the exception of a few that are polling very low right now most of them are still in defense of donald trump and not using this as a moment to go on the attack reggie Cicchini with us washington correspondent for global news uh former president u.s u.s president donald trump in court tomorrow in miami make sure you're watching reggie tonight for more on all of this thank you reggie be well thank you you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know coming out of the pandemic uh, how much prices uh, have gone up. Inflation, interest rates and such. And, and just affordability has uh, has just gone. Um, well, everything is more expensive. And we hear more and more about that. Uh, obviously, interest rates rising uh, lately as well. But once you start putting a number to something, it really it really kind of drives it all home. And according to a 
a report from the National Bank of Canada. To buy the average home in Hamilton, you need to have an annual income, the family, the household, of $209,000. Think about that. In order for uh, to buy the average home, which is, I guess, around $885,000 uh, in and around that area in, in the hammer right now, uh, you're going to need over two hundred grand. Is that accurate? Let's bring in Don Fox, executive financial consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, and host of Planning Your Financial Future every Saturday morning right here on CHML. And Don is with us now. Don, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Ah, doing great, Scott. Yourself? So far, so good. Does this sound accurate uh, for you know new home buyers that are coming in, and or even people that are uh, upgrading to a midsize or, or mid-family home and such? Do, do, is it going to take it at least two hundred grand in the family in order to make it happen? Well, it's probably not far from the truth. I was actually, you know, I, I was reading that article this morning, and uh, funny you brought that up to my attention. And you know what? The nice thing is, it's actually putting dollars to it. Like, what do we really need? It's one thing to always talk about the cost of of a of a house, um, but quite often people only look at the payments, and they'll just say, "Okay, I can afford this payment." But then, of course, if interest rates rise. Well, then the payments go up with it and they could probably not afford it. And we're finding that out right now. So I thought it was great to actually start to, you know, look, take a step back and say, how much do we really need to make to afford a house? And, you know, I went through these numbers and it's kind of interesting. Yeah, If you took on a big mortgage and just put down the minimum payment and got the whole thing insured, which, you know, in the first 500000 of a house, yeah, you can put down five percent as a as a home buyer, and the next five hundred thousand, you, you it's ten percent, and the rest would be done with CMHC financing, which adds another layer of cost to the house. So at the end of the day, if you put the minimum down on a house, and it this is the this, you need to make around just over two hundred thousand dollars. And the other figure that that stood out in this is sixty seven percent of the income going towards that house. Yeah, that's that would say okay. If you looked at the average income in Hamilton, it were it was about eighty eight thousand for a household. So you cannot afford the average house. Yeah, because the average house costs eight hundred eighty eighty five thousand dollars. And so if you just took a look at the average income as a family income too, that's not just the average income. That's the average household income, as you pointed out. Um, it would be sixty seven percent of that average income. So therefore. Yes, you can't. You can't. An average person or the average household cannot buy the average house unless they have quite the large down payment, and that's that catch twenty two. How do you save for this down payment if I'm paying two thousand a month in rent? So it's 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 it is a it's a tough thing to do. Uh, buying a house, Don, it's never been an easy thing. It's always been like one of the most difficult things you'll ever do. And, and we've had these discussions for years and years. But, man, you got to feel for the young people of today who are trying to do this. It just seems, especially when you put that kind of number in front of them, it just seems like it's out of reach. It, it is. It's out, it's out there. And this is why you're seeing particularly, I guess, the millennial parents of millennials have been helping their kids because without – kind of a leg up on this they would not qualify they can't save that long and if they're not staying at home and say they're living somewhere else and they're paying the average rent in hamilton for one bedroom is just under two thousand dollars a month so it's how do you save that money and this is like you like you said scott in our day it was hard to do it it's harder it's even harder now because the the wages haven't gone up to the same degree as what the housing prices have and what also happened is the interest rates dropped 
and that allowed a lot of people into the market, which then, of course, drove up the housing prices more, which they're kind of balancing off again because the housing prices have now since dropped about 20%. So it is kind of at the equilibrium, but still really tough to do on your own with an average income. And this is very much pointed out by the headline of this article. And this, uh, Don, I don't see this being a short-term problem. It's like the housing shortage. It took a while to get into this. It's going to take a while to build our way out of this. This isn't a short-term issue, is it? No, not at all. And and you're looking at for the average income in Hamilton, trying to save for house, um, to get the average house, they, they worked it out that would take about 87 months. So over over seven years to save up, save the down payment, which is about a $63,000 down payment. Well, $63,000 down payment on an $885,000 home, that isn't that much over, that's just, just under 7%. I think it's around six, mm. 6 or 7% down payment. So then you still owe a whole ton of money on this house. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's tricky. And th- you know what the best part about this, though? It all comes back down to you need to not be emotional about buying a house. You need to really work it, work down the numbers and say, here's the most I can afford based on my income as a couple. Um, and if it's a single person, same thing. Um, you look at what's your take-home pay and what things do you need? Is there any um, childcare expenses down the road? Is there you know, a, a car that we're going to need to buy? So you have to put everything down there and, again, really plan this out. Otherwise, people are going to get caught in a bind. They, you know, These bidding wars had people simply buying houses without really doing the homework because it ends up being this emotional buy trying to get this house and then – you know, then they have the house. Now what? Mm. Um, how do we afford it? And we know that, you know, over the years, uh, home ownership is one of the best ways to build personal wealth. Now, with nobody or very few having the opportunity to get into it, you got to wonder how this is going to change things 10, 20 years from now. Yeah, there's all sorts of moving parts with this. You got immigration moving to Canada, and then there's a demand for housing. Uh, interest rates going up. That's certainly cooled things off a lot. So there's there is some things, of course, the job market. If it changes, if you can say say I'm, I can work remotely, well then I could work anywhere. It doesn't have to be in Hamilton. It could or it could be in a less expensive area in mm-hmm. in Canada. Um, and and of course, then maybe the affordability would be better. So yeah, there's a. There's lots. The nice thing that they did come out with is that first home, first time home buyers uh, savings account. Yeah. And that just came out this year where you can put in $8,000 per person. So if there's a couple, $16,000, which is a tax deduction, simply like an R, just like an RSP. And you can, and you can invest that money into certain products. Usually they're not long-term because you want to buy a, a house as soon as you can. And you can accumulate $40,000 each into these. And that's certainly a great start to helping to buy that first house. So we didn't have those, Scott. So these these are great. Mm. You're also going to get this refund check. And the nice thing is when you pull the money out for a house, you don't have to pay it back. Unlike these new the RSP home first-time yeah. home buyers. So yeah. you get the tax deduction. It's almost like an RSP and a TFSA all wrapped into one for a first-time home buyer. So a fantastic product. I, I really urge any young person out there trying to buy that first house, definitely go and and check these things out because that's a great way to try to help you save. Don Fox with us, executive financial consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. Make sure you're listening to Planning Your Financial Future every Saturday morning. Don, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you so much. 
the price of uh, living, of life, of everything uh, seems to be going up and up and up in a post-pandemic world. And many have talked to uh, talked about the rising cost of energy and how that affects everything in the supply chain uh, as we head towards yet another carbon price uh, increase. Some are saying, should we pause these until people get a better handle on the cost of living and what is going on? Let's bring in Christopher Reagan, Associate Professor and Founding Director of the McGill University Max Bell School of Public Policy. And here now, Chris, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me here, Scott. A big debate, uh, obviously affordability, a massive issue. These taxes continue to go up. Uh, many are questioning whether it's the right time. Obviously, the majority of the Canadians of Canadians are concerned about climate change. However, they're also concerned about feeding their families and such. What do we do here, Chris? How do you balance these prices going up? What we need to do to keep an eye on climate change, and yet, uh, you know, he, hear what uh, what Canadians are saying. Right. Well, look, I think there are two things. Number one, climate change hasn't changed in the last little while. It has been a problem for some time. It will be a problem for some time. And I think it's really important as a country that we address it. And the carbon price that we have now in place across this country uh, is, is, is basically the most efficient way. It's the lowest cost way to actually reduce emissions. So I'm, I'm a big fan of having a carbon price and letting that carbon price rise. And it's currently scheduled to rise by about $15 per ton um, every year for the next several years. Okay, And it will peak out at $170, according to the current plan, $170 per ton um, by 2030. By the way, that amount is only increasing the price of gasoline over the next eight years, only increasing the price of gasoline by about uh, 30 cents, 30 or 40 cents a liter. So it's not, which still puts us well below many other countries. So I think that's a good policy. I think uh, provincial governments and federal governments, depending on where you live in this country, um, you're facing a carbon price. I think that's a good policy and we should continue. But the second thing is that the federal carbon price is designed so that um, there are rebates associated with it, so that households receive back a cash rebate um, so that it doesn't uh, reduce your purchasing power or make you poor, in other words. And that's a really important part of the carbon price. So a lot of people think that economists who talk about this, like me, are crazy because we're suggesting a carbon tax on one hand and a rebate on the other, and you know, doesn't that just cancel each other out? But the carbon price is designed to really get people to change their behavior. Right to, you know, to switch out their furnace or to adopt a smaller, uh, more efficient vehicle, uh, or you know, change the way they heat their homes or you know, change the types of vacations they take because carbon uh, intensive things are more expensive. The rebate is designed to make sure that this whole thing doesn't make you poorer. And so in this day and age, even if we didn't have the inflation that we had had over the past year and a half. Uh, I think this combination of a carbon price and a rebate is a really good combination. And as the carbon price rises over time, the rebates rise over time. And I think that's good policy. 
Um, I'm not sure you'll find many Canadians that say whatever kind of check they got covers whatever we're seeing things go up in price. Um, is it time to change strategy here, especially when we're seeing what's happening in the world? Uh, more and more reports, the parliamentary budget officer uh, did a report on this. Globe and Mail's editorial board had a story on this last week or so. Uh, Canada, and, and, and again, nobody's a climate change denier here. Most Canadians want the right thing to be done and, 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 and are concerned over climate change in the planet. But the reality is we still only expel less than 2% of the world's greenhouse gases, and we're constantly taxing the hell out of Canadians. Do we have the right strategy here, Christopher? And by that I'm saying, should we not be getting the world off of coal and giving uh, the world the natural resources, the cleaner natural resources that they are begging for? We can suck Canada dry, we can screw down the taps, we can do everything we want, but the parliamentary budget officer said it ain't going to have any difference on monetary policy or the environment. Are we barking up the wrong uh, the wrong tree here, Chris? Right. Should we be trying right. to get the world off of coal? Right. So, the, the, look, there's a bunch of things in what you've just said. So, first of all, there's no question. Canada is a very small uh, piece of the whole world puzzle. But I don't think Canadians want to be free riders. So, I, I, you know, here we have a global problem. And really, it's a global, what economists would call a collective action problem, right? We've got a problem that is about global emissions and every little bit counts. And if we are going to go to the U.N., meetings every December, and we are going to encourage other countries to adopt stringent and effective climate policies, I think we've got to kind of do the same thing at home. Otherwise, I think many would say, Christopher, that we are already doing that and we already have one of the cleanest. So, uh, you know, I don't think Canadians are looking for a free ride here. I think what Canadians want to offer is a solution here. Um, You know, I I don't think we're a free ride here at one point five percent of global greenhouse gases. We're looking for a solution here. Well, look, I think part of that solution is if Canada, I I think what you're alluding to is, you know, could we get some countries in the world off of coal and help that transition along by selling them, for example, natural gas or liquefied natural gas? I think that's a great idea. Uh, And that might be something that, in fact, increases Canadian emissions but reduces global emissions, right? Correct. Canadian LNG can displace uh, Chinese coal. Let's just suppose that's, you know, that's possible, and I think it is possible. Then Canadian emissions might go up, but global emissions might go down, and I think that's something we should be thinking about. And, you know, uh, thinking about I think we're late to this discussion, Christopher, because the rest of the world is already doing it, including the U.S. and Mexico, which have torqued up their production. We're out of time. we got to run. Christopher Reagan with us, Associate Professor, Founding Director, McGill University's Max Bell School of Public Policy. Thank you, Chris. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Happy Monday. Back at you. You know, we were talking on uh, Thursday, I think it was, uh, and you were at the Canadian Open, and we are talking about how, unfortunately, the golf was being overshadowed by the uh, PGA Live announcement. And now look at how this has done a full circle and what a phenomenal ending for 
for for Canada and the Canadian who won? It was uh, it was a great ending. It was as good an ending as you could have had. I mean, yeah. even if this had been four extra holes and a seventy-two foot putt by anybody else. It would have been fantastic, but the fact that it was by a Canadian to end a 69-year drought, um, it's amazing. The, the only person, I think, who might be upset by this would be the family of Pat Fletcher, because his name will never again be said. <laughs> the guy who was the previous <laughs> the last, last winner, <laughs> who was essentially not really... I mean, he was, a, he was a good golfer, but obviously he won a Canadian Open, but he wasn't like a Mike Weir. You may never hear Pat Fletcher's name uttered again. This was the end of it, so for better or for worse. So what does this do for Nick Taylor and his career? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, one of the interesting things, Scott, about this, we're going to talk about it in my second hour. Um, one of the interesting things is, and I, I, it's kind of a recency bias, but if you followed social media yesterday or heard some people talking, there are people saying this might usurp Paul Henderson's goal in 72 as the Canadian moment. And I was like... Mm. Nah, no, not close. <laughs> not, honestly, not close. Like, uh, I, as, it was a fantastic moment. I'm taking nothing away. We're going to talk in the next hour about what would be the top 10 all-time Canadian sports moments. Wow. I, I am not sure this cracks the top 10. We're talking... Really? Oh, well, no, it's got to crack the top 10. Well, let's go through some of the ones. Uh, is it going to beat Paul Henderson? No. Uh, no. Uh, is it going to beat um, Joe Carter's home run? No. No. Is it going to beat Mike Weir winning the Masters? No. Is okay. it going to beat the Jays winning their first World Series? Or Donovan Bailey winning gold in Atlanta? Or even Ben Johnson? If you, I mean, I know what happened yeah, with Ben see, Johnson. Now you're, getting, now you're getting towards the bottom of the list. Now no, I would say no, no. I would beat I, them. So I'd say at least top five. You you're know, going certainly top five. Within the top. Okay. I'd say, I'd say he's in, this is at least in the top ten. It's certainly not below it's, the top It's 10. debatable. Top, I mean, you could, there's a lot of things. When you start going through it, and this is the problem, there's mm. a lot of things. Now, that's not taking anything away. It's because there's a lot of great moments we have to choose from. I just, yesterday when I was hearing people say, this might be the greatest moment ever. It's like, okay, everyone take a breath. It was amazing. Enjoy it. It's a fantastic. Nick Taylor is now an like a name that will always have a place that people will talk about. It's not a bad thing in, in no way. It was a fantastic thing. It's just, I don't, I don't know where it ranks in our, in our sporting lexicon. I don't know where it would find its spot. So does this have as much of an impact for young Canadian golfers as a Mike Weir thing? No. No. I, and I mean, the ending was way more dramatic. Mike Weir didn't, I mean, Mike Weir hit a two and a half foot putt to win the Masters, if you remember, a tap in. Um, but no, I mean, it's not the Masters. It's not the green jacket. But it's 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 an amazing thing that we can celebrate that our national open has a national champion and it was done in a way that was remarkably exciting i again i mean is it would it have been more impressive if he had won this by six strokes outright maybe would yeah, anyone would anybody really remember it though in 10 or 15 years if he had done it that way this the way he did it everybody's mm-hmm. going to remember this yeah, good point. All right, uh, could see some champions uh, crown tonight, NBA and NHL. What are your thoughts? It, it, uh, let's just stick with the NHL for a second because, you know, the NBA is whatever. Um, the, uh, the, the, 
it, it seems, if you're a Leaf fan around here, I said this before, it just seems entirely like the fates and the universe is against you when it's either going to be probably the Vegas Golden Knights lifting the Stanley Cup or the, my, or the Florida Panthers, Miami Panthers. I mean, it is... They've been at, Vegas has been in the league for six years. They've been in the finals twice. They've always been good, pretty much. <laughs> the Leafs, 56 years since they've been in the finals. They've got a fan base. People in Vegas, I'm telling you, Scott, I, I've made this prediction. You know how much I hate predictions. The Vegas Golden Knights, in a few years, once they are not good, are going to be a struggling NHL franchise because nobody there will care. They've always been really good, so they've always had people. You watch. In a few years, I'm not saying they're going to be Arizona. They're not. But they are going to be a team that you can get a ticket for any night of the year with no problem because they will be struggling. But not now. Right now, they're far from struggling. They're probably going to be lifting the cup tonight. I think because uh, Vegas is like the entertainment capital of whatever it is, I think they will never have a hard time uh, selling the place out because there'll be people, tourists coming in from all over the world that will want to see anything that is going on there, uh, whether maybe. it's this sport, that sport, or the other sport. Maybe. I think that's I think that's different than a, you know a, a, an Arizona or, or a keep team in mind or even even Florida. Keep in mind they they have an NFL team now. They're about to have a Major League Baseball team, and yes, they will always have people there when the Leafs or the Canadians or or any, any of the original big teams come. Mm-hmm. But are they going to sell out the building when it's them versus Columbus in a January evening? Or if you're coming down from Columbus, are you going, forget that, I'm playing the slots. That's why I came for to watch <laughs> Celine Dion and play the slots. <laughs> Good point. All right. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Thanks, Scott. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to leave the last word. This via email from BA, who writes, in my opinion, Jody Wilson-Raybould should be asked if she would be willing to lead a public inquiry. I think she would be an awesome choice, and hopefully she would be up for the task if she was asked to take it on. Nighty-night.